Well, as I said at the beginning, today is the Feast of All Saints Day, and tomorrow, Christ Our Peace will celebrate that um, great feast day. And with that, we will have three baptisms, our first baptisms at Christ Our Peace, which is very exciting. Three young children will be baptized, and as they are baptized, they will join in the one holy Catholic Apostolic Church of Christ, the family of God. And it is so fitting that All Saints Day is set aside especially for baptisms, and tonight for us for the renewal of our baptismal vows, which I'll explain later. Because it is on this feast day that we are reminded that our life in Christ is not our own private affair. We belong to a bigger life, the life and community of all of the people of God who have sought to love and to serve God throughout all time and in all places. And baptism is one significant sign of that mysterious reality. As I looked at the scriptures uh, in the lectionary for this week, I was struck again, however, by the very unique nature of this communion of saints, of this church of Christ, and how different it is than what many in the world think it's supposed to be. Rather than a communion of the powerful or the persuasive or the victorious, rather than a communion of the self-assured or the confident or the ones who have it all together, rather than a communion of those who come together to exert their power over others, the true communion of saints is a communion of the poor and needy, the hungry, the sorrowful, the anxious, the rejected and despised, a communion of the poor in spirit, whose hope is firmly fixed on the glorious love of God in Christ. And I just want to say right now at the beginning, if you came in tonight and you felt like any of those things described you that I just laid out, you're in good company. This is the truth. This is what I would want each of these children who will be baptized tomorrow to grow up knowing. And lives if we hope to be formed into the image of the Christ whom we love for the sake of the world. And I think our scriptures today suggest a very particular way that we can live into this reality. First, we are invited to accept and to receive our lowliness. Multiple times in scriptures, I'm sure many of you already know this, Jesus says these really interesting things like that he came to seek and save the lost or that those who are well do not need a doctor, but he came for those who were ill. And when I was younger, I remember that those passages really disturbed me in some way. But as I came to know Jesus a little bit more and came to be a little bit more honest with my own shortcomings, these became good words as I realized that God 
in Jesus is not intending to exclude by saying things like this, but instead is... Version, Luke's version of the Beatitudes is expressing this same ups. We are the communion of the poor and the meek and the lowly. So Luke 6, verse 20, when Jesus looks at his disciples, starts with this. He says, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Now, tomorrow, I actually am going to preach this passage from the First Nations version. Um, this is a, the first New Testament translation created by Native people for Native people and for others who are not Native people or do not identify as Native people. And I just wanted to highlight here as I start the Beatitudes um, the phrasing that they use for blessed are you. In this translation, it says, first of all, creator sets free is what Jesus's name is, which I just absolutely love. And it says, creator sets free, looked out over the crowd of his followers and began to teach them about the ways of creator's good road. And then says this, creator's blessing rests on you who are poor and in need. I love that phrasing, creator's blessing rests on you. Maybe like me, when you heard the Beatitudes, um, if you grew up in the church, you heard them more as like an assignment that you were supposed to fulfill because you would be blessed if you would just be poor. Well, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, but you know, I wasn't always hungry and I wasn't always um, sad. And so I didn't really understand what it meant. But here I think this translation is so helpful because it points to the fact that Jesus is describing a reality, not an if-then, but a reality, that when you are poor and in need, or when you recognize that you are poor and in need, Creator's blessing rests on you. It goes on to say, Creator's blessing rests on you who hunger now, for you will be filled to the full. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who weep now, for your sorrow will turn into laughter. And then it says, Creator's blessing rests on the ones, I'm sorry, rests on you when you are hated and rejected, looked down on and treated as worthless, all because you have chosen to walk the good road with the true human being. So if Creator's blessing rests on us when we are poor and needy and hungry and weeping and hated and rejected, if that is exactly the point at which God meets us with all of God's goodness, then why wouldn't we accept our lowliness? But we all know we don't. We don't want to. We do so much in our power to resist accepting those difficult places and times in our lives. 
First of all, because it hurts and it's hard. And who really wants to receive something that hurts or is hard? I don't. When I am, today I uh, fell over the dog crate and hurt my leg really bad. And um, I mean, I'm fine now, I, I'm gonna have a bad bruise, but I was sitting there as I was in more pain than you would think I would be from tripping. And I, I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, God's blessing is upon me as I am experiencing this great amount of pain. No, I was like, what can I do to get this pain to stop? That is a natural human instinct. And I don't think that Jesus is trying to say to us that we should revel in our pain or that we should be some sort of false martyrs. But instead, that in the midst of that pain, we would receive the truth that God is actually close to us rather than far from us, which is what we usually think when we're in the midst of our pain and our lowliness. But the problem is not only does it not feel good to be in a lowly estate, the world despises the sick, the poor, the hungry, the rejected, the fill in the blank. And so instead, we would rather be those whom Jesus describes in the rest of this passage, Luke 6, starting in verse 24, where Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, who are well-fed, who laugh now, and who everyone speaks well of. Again, I got to say, I would rather be rich, well-fed, laughing, and having everyone speak well of me. It's, that's absolutely true. And those are the things that are championed by our world. But the difficulty is that those are also not only championed by our world, but I would say particularly in this moment, in our Christian, white Christian especially, world, some are suggesting that that is what Christianity has to offer. This week, uh, there was an article in CT that was reporting on Christian nationalism and how um, different people understand power based on um, their ideas about how Christians should interact with a political world. And there were two Christian leaders who were quoted. They have just published a booklet on Christian nationalism and how um, they are recommending it to Christians. And this quote just really got me. They said, we are all done being footstools. We are done being pushovers. Now we want to win. Win souls for Christ. Win elections. Win in the culture. Win for the glory of God. If that doesn't make you feel a little uncomfortable, there's something wrong. I just want to tell you that. Because we are called to be the communion of the poor in spirit. We are called to be those who are rejected and despised because not only were our ancestors before us rejected and despised and poor and hungry, but our Savior himself was poor and needy and rejected and despised. And the reality is, church, when we go after being rich, I'm going to read them again, well-fed, happy all the time, and having everyone speak well of us, we really miss the core message of what Jesus came for. We are invited to accept our lowly state because 
it, it is the reality. The reality is that we are poor and needy, whether spiritually or physically or otherwise. And when we instead try to do everything with our power and our influence and our energies to become rich, to become well-fed, to become thought well of, we cannot do that but for the oppression and the, um, uh, the, I can't even think of the word, it just went out of my head, the oppression of others. It cannot be that we are victorious without stomping on others. I mean, their words are just so perfect here to, to make this clear. We don't want to be footstools or pushovers. We want to win. But if we are going to win, then we have to be the ones pushing over. We have to be the ones making other people our footstool. And that, as we all well know, that's why we're here. That is not the way of Jesus. That is the way of death. And what I think is, again, so interesting about the First Nations translation is that it, it says it this way. Sorrow and trouble will be the end of you, is the way it phrases. It phrases the woe to you, because you have already had your life of ease. You have already had your fill. You have already had your laughter. You have already had all of the false approbation. You have gone for what cannot last. And by doing so, you have hurt others in the process. And sorrow and trouble will come to you in the end when you see what real power is. The power of Jesus to come under, to give over, and then by doing so, to lift up and empower and resurrect. And that's what Paul is uh, alluding to, not alluding to, that's what Paul's making very clear in Ephesians, where he talks about in uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, the glorious inheritance of God's holy people and his incomparably great power, I'm now in verse 19, for us who believe. And this is Jesus' kind of power. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The power of Jesus is a different kind of power. It is the power of being lowly and knowing that that lowliness leads to true life and resurrection. And that is the power that the communion of saints inherits. And if we are to receive our reality of being the communion of the poor in spirit, we need to first accept that we are lowly, and second, keep in mind this glorious power that is our inheritance. I love the way that Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1. He, he goes on and on. I mean, it's just this beautiful passage where he's saying that we actually have in us so much more than we've ever imagined. It's what Jesus is pointing to when he says that the reality is that you who are hungry now will be satisfied. You who are weeping now will laugh. And you who are, are poor now will actually receive the kingdom of God. This is the upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. God 
is at work right now in the world, working through the lowliest among us to turn everything upside down. The real power that we want to align ourselves with as the communion of saints is that kind of power, the power that is willing to lay down in order to see the resurrection that's before us. And we have the opportunity to either take a hold of that, to encourage one another with that true power, or we can go for what the world, and as I said, increasingly the church, has on offer. What Paul prays for the communion of saints is my prayer, not only for these uh, three children who I have the opportunity to baptize tomorrow, but also for each and every one of us. Paul's prayer, when he says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, says this. He asks for three things. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The first thing that Paul prays is that we would know Jesus better because the only place that we're going to learn how to be lowly is from the lowly one. The one who in Isaiah 53 is referred to as despised and rejected. So malformed by the evil of the world that people wouldn't even want to look on him. He is the one who teaches us how to be lowly in heart so that we might know him more. And then, secondly, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know the hope to which God has called us. And that is so key because the reality is, as I said, when we're in the midst of these really difficult moments, when we're feeling our lowliness, it's hope that first leaves, right? It's hope that first walks out the door. But Paul's prayer is that the spirit of Jesus himself, as we come to know him, would embody our lives in such a way that we would be able to see that truly there is the hope of being well-fed, of, of being able to laugh with one another in the kingdom of God, with light hearts that are no longer weighed down by the troubles of this world that we would be able to join in the communion of the poor in spirit one day where all of us who have held on to this hope might look at each other with our faces beaming and say, isn't God so good? Look at all of the ways that he has been good to us so that we would know the hope to the, which we have been called and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And then thirdly, as I said, his incomparably great power. The power of the resurrection is actually so much stronger than the power of this world, but it does not appear to be that way. It appears that the power of this world is what is going to fill in the blank. What have you been told in the last however many years? that the power of this world will get us a Christian nation, which is what we all want, right? Sorry for the sarcasm. That the power of this world will secure us and make us safe, 
that the power of this world will keep our children safe. These are the things that the power of this world promises, and guess what? The power of this world is not strong enough to do any of those things. Any of those things. There is no nation in all of, of time that has been able to keep bad things from happening. That's just not possible. We live in a broken world. And church, we've got to accept that lowliness. Because as we accept that lowliness, then we will turn to the only one who can actually bring hope. And that is Jesus, the one who destroys the power of death and hell. The one who destroys all of the sadness in this world and promises to bring us hope and resurrection. Now, these are really good words, but I want to invite us for a moment on this All Saints Day to bring this to the more granular, granular level. And I just want to tell you about three very common saints and how they have helped me to see and others to see, because I'm borrowing two of the stories, that holding on to our lowliness is actually the way to receive the goodness of God and the power of resurrection. The first one is um, Brandon Burdett, who is a member of our church, but he used to go here, and some of you know him. And um, these, last month, I asked for people to send in stories of ordinary saints in their life. And Brandon sent in a story about um, a young man named Gregory, who was in his sister's class, and who was always very ill as a child. And as he came into his teenage years, he actually lost um, the ability to speak as part of his illness. But Brandon said that as he was growing up, he had never seen anyone who loved God as much as Gregory, who was able to express his love for God even when he lost his ability to speak. And Brandon said, every time we pray the prayers of the people, and Brandon is a 30-something year old, so this, you know, he hasn't been around Gregory for at least 18 years. But every time we pray the prayers of the people, he said, Gregory, comes to his mind as the dearly departed who taught him what it was to accept his lowliness and then through that to receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second story is again just a very simple one but uh, my mother-in-law loves to tell about her best friend Sherry who for um, years and years and years would pray for my mother-in-law and there were many years um, Renee is my mother-in-law's name, so I don't have to keep saying mother-in-law. Um, Renee was, uh, became a believer when she was young, but had a number of years in her uh, teenage years and her 20s where she wasn't at all in relationship with Jesus. And Sherry, well, according to her, of course, God was still seeking her. Uh, I don't want to be mistaken about that. But Sherry would call her once a week and tell her, as after the, at the end of their conversation, she would say, Renee, I just want you to know I'm praying for you every single week. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Now, if I was Sherry, I would feel like this is doing nothing. Me holding on to this hope, me holding on to the smallness of my prayer, this is not ever going to make a difference in Renee's life. But I will tell you, as the recipient of the amazing faith of Renee and of her son and of my children, Sherry's prayers for Renee were more impactful than she could ever have imagined. 
And then the third story is I just wanted to, um, as I was thinking about saints, there are many here, I just wanna say that. I would talk about Doug, but I talked about him the last time I preached, so I can't, I can't single him out once again. But I will mention a wonderful woman by the name of Martha Mead, um, who is uh, Marge's mother-in-law. But Martha and I went to church together for a number of years, and um, she's gone to be with Jesus now. When I came to the church, she was probably, Marge, you could correct me, it was 20 years ago, 70s maybe, somewhere around there. And we were in a women's Bible study together. And what impressed me more than anything about Martha, and I was, you know, I was in my 20s, um, is that every week Martha had these really honest questions about the Bible. And as far as I knew, Martha had been a Christian longer than I knew anybody else had been a Christian. And the fact that she still had these really honest questions just so impressed me that she was still it, like a child, just so eager to know more about her blessed Savior. And I learned so much from the questions that she would ask. And Martha not only impressed me with her very open and honest learning heart, but also by the very simple ways that she would minister to the rest of us. Whenever somebody was sick, she would write them a handwritten card. She had beautiful penmanship. Um, and whenever any of us had children, she would uh, embroider a felt blanket for us. And I still have the blankets that Martha gave to us that she wove her prayers for my children into. And they will have those to give to if they have children or nieces and nephews or other children that come into their life. Martha's very simple, very lowly, if you would call it, faith that led her to continue to ask the questions, that led her to simply write a card that led her to embroider prayers into blankets. All of those things have had very significant impacts on my family and my children. My children were prayed for by Martha, who they don't even remember now. But their, her love of God and her love of them as, the, as a part of the communion of saints is woven into their very lives. And this is the invitation that each of us have to receive our lowliness and not despise it to remember our inheritance our our the power that has been promised to us and the fact that we stand in this huge company of saints who are right now saying keep believing it is true god's power of resurrection is great and it is that road that leads us to these very simple and yet very profound acts of love with Jesus for the sake of the world. And I'll just close by saying that is how I think we are empowered to do these amazing things that Jesus says in the last part of our gospel reading. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. The only way to inhabit this completely countercultural way of being in the world is to receive our own lowliness and to remember our inheritance and to join Jesus in these small ways of loving that we know will have 
much power because of God's resurrection. I pray for all of us that when we are feeling our lowliness the most, that then we will know not only the communion of Jesus in the spiritual sense, but also the communion of all the rest of us standing here with us, and all the rest of those throughout time and space, and all of those who might go before us, who are championing us on even now. These are mystical realities, but this is the good news that we've been promised, that we are a part of the communion of the poor in spirit. If only we will receive that as the good news that it is. Thanks be to God. In this moment of silence, I just want to invite you specifically um, to either speak to God about your own sense of loneliness, right, or lowliness right now, which might be loneliness, and or to talk to God and remember a saint who has taught you what it is to be poor in spirit.